1: And we've got a special two part year in review for you. We haven't done a year in review before, so thought it might be fun to do so. We- Welcome to Compliance into the Weeds. In this part two of our two part year in review, we look at the Biden administration's strategy on countering corruption in conjunction with Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco's speech on the DOJ refocus on FCPA enforcement, we consider ransomware attacks, and we conclude with a look at ESG and why the compliance profession needs to lead this corporate effort. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for part two in our special year-end review in our first uh, podcast, we took up three topics, and we looked at SPACs, we looked at Robin Hood and GameStop, and we looked at the hybrid work environment. In today's podcast, we're going to look at uh, the Biden administration's strategy on countering corruption. The uh, in conjunction with the Lisa Monaco speech, we're going to look at ransomware. Matt's going to talk to us about that. Then I'm going to conclude with some thoughts about ESG. So, Matt, I know we took up the uh, Biden administration's strategy on countering corruption. And the more I've uh, studied this strategy uh, document, uh, with the 38-page document released by the Biden administration, the more I think that we've really uh, – it coalesced many areas that have been going on. But I think it makes a fundamental change in how the U.S. government's going to approach corruption and the fight against corruption on a variety of, of levels in different areas. And I think that's because of the focus on corruption and the resources that are going to be thrown on corrupt, uh, get at corruption. The strategy itself had five pillars. Uh, number one, modernizing resources. Number two, curbing illicit financing. Number three, holding corrupt actors responsible. Number four, <clears throat> multilateral anti and anti-corruption architecture. And then, uh, number five, diplomatic engagement. And I'm going to take one point from each of these five pillars. Uh, Number one, uh, modernizing resources. Here it was something the DOJ has talked about uh, most significantly back in 2020, but really even previously before that, that's data collection and data analysis. And this is going to occur across uh, U.S. government agencies, also uh, internationally and (laughs) with private sector actors. The second part of that is the resources to perform the analysis after the data is collected. And I think this is going to lead to a, uh, a huge explosion, or moving forward at least, of tech growth to help process this data. Uh, I don't pretend to know who's going to come up with it or, or what it may sh- shine or show us, but I think that some enterprising uh, tech companies will come up with a way to do that. Number two is curbing illicit financing. This is the one that probably uh, is going to be most familiar to listeners of this podcast and the uh, general compliance community because it's around uh, ultimate beneficial owners uh, and the uh, largely the information that came out from the new anti-money laundering law of 2020, which uh, was passed back on January 1 of 2020 in terms of Bringing AML into the not simply 21st century because we did that with the Patriot Act, but into the 2020s. And I think there's going to be a lot more effort in collecting data on shell companies and ultimate beneficial owners and tracking of trade financing and tracking of money laundering that is occurring through bribery and corruption. And that's the part that I think is going to impact the compliance professional. Also, uh, really a fight against shell corporations inside the United States at the state domestic level. Number three is holding corrupt actors responsible. And there's been some talk in Congress and even legislation introduced to add a, a buyer side to the FCPA, meaning the people who receive the bribes would be uh, made uh, or it would be criminalized to receive bribes. But the part I wanted to focus on is the administration made clear that they want to protect investigative journalists. We had the Panama Papers, the Pandora Papers, and the Paradise Papers, and those were hugely influential, I think, in getting publicity to get Congress to pass the AML Law of 2020. And um, that's just traditional investigative journalism at its finest, in my opinion. Number four was the multilateral uh, anti-bribery, anti-correction architecture. And this includes both uh, international uh, regimes, to combat corruption, the OECD, the United Nations, uh, the World Bank. But the two points or a point I wanted to emphasize here was they're going to use some actors we haven't traditionally thought of as in the fight against corruption, and specifically the U.S. Department of Defense and NATO. Now, it makes sense that they'd be a part of that fight because they are huge contractors or purchasers of suppliers and services. And certainly if you contract with the DoD, you have to have a compliance program in place. But this is turning it beyond having to have a compliance program if you want to do business with the DoD or NATO. This is turning NATO into a proactive agent into the fight against bribery and corruption. And then uh, number five was elevate diplomatic engagement. But as one of the parts of that prong or that pillar Uh, they talked about innovation in the technology space. And that certainly ties into what I saw in Pillar 1. But I think we're going to have really an explosion of different ways to collect data and then to analyze that data, as I said earlier, in ways that uh, I can't think of right now, but that the government's going to fund because corruption is now seen uh, in the national security interests of the United States. So I think uh, this document is going to coalesce many things that were ongoing. Some of these were a little bit new to me. Um, The international protection of journalists is something that many people have called out for a long time. Uh, Using DOD and NATO, perhaps it was going on, but it's now a part of the the public discourse. So I see the strategy as uh, putting together many different Thoughts and uh, different initiatives that have been going on for a while, but coalescing them away that the U.S. government is going to commit to at least this administration. Lisa Monaco's speech. Uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco spoke to the Monaco, spoke to the white collar or ABA white collar conference back in October, and she made some major announcements regarding how the Department of Justice would. Uh, change its focus on white-collar crime, and uh, more specifically FCPA, and every compliance practitioner needs to uh, study this speech, and they need to be aware of what I think is coming down the pike. Uh, There were three key takeaways for me, Matt. The first one was the reinstitution of the Yates memo, and the Yates memo said that all criminal or all conduct which violate the FCPA once it's discovered in an internal investigation, it has to be turned over to the government if you self-disclose or if you want to self-disclose. The uh, Trump administration had watered that down. The H memo was originally announced in September of 2015, and the Trump administration changed that to be really all relevant information. The Department of Justice now wants to make the decision on what conduct is relevant, what information you uncover in your investigation is relevant, and I don't know if that's some experiences with they want to or they don't trust the investigation or if there's something else going on. But uh, the Department of Justice wants that turned over, and that means uh, to get the credit for self-disclosure, you're going to have to fully turn over all information. You can't just give a half a peek inside your kimono. Number two, the Department of Justice will start evaluating all prior misconduct. Now, Matt, we've certainly had instances where the DOJ would uh, evaluate recidivism within the FCPA context if a company became a two-time or even a three-time loser. But under this initiative, the Department of Justice will evaluate all your prior misconduct, and they'll evaluate all your prior investigations on a worldwide basis. So from a... um, Uh, knowledge basis, I guess, as a compliance officer, you now have a world of information that you need to have, if not at your fingertips, available to you because you're going to have to disclose that to the government. But I think more importantly, Matt, and this ties into a point you raised in our first podcast on our year in review part one, which is about corporate culture. Uh, DAG Monaco said that The clearest indicia of a company who will do business ethically and in compliance is a good corporate culture. Well, that's now going to be evaluated literally across the globe in all compliance regimes, anti-bribery, anti-corruption, environmental, human rights, uh, anti-discrimination, and everything else, every other type of legal or regulatory requirement. And, And many companies are not really, I think, have thought through that or prepared to think about that, the defense bar in late November and early December at the ACI National FCPA Conference raised several uh, critical objections to this, saying that it was unfair and how could a company be expected to be evaluated on RICO conduct on, uh, that happened 20 years ago or five years ago or an environmental fine for an FCPA case. And the DOJ held firm that's like, no, we're going to look at all conduct, and we'll make the decision on your corporate culture. So that tied a little bit for me back into the Yates memo that the DOJ really wants the full picture before they make a decision on a fine penalty or a non-prosecution agreement or even a declination. And the final point was on monitors. The Bichkowski memo was revoked. And now the Department of Justice says they're going to aggressively use monitors. They're going to use it for, for a variety of reasons. They believe positive. These are not gotcha monitors. They're there as an arm of the DOJ to get companies in trouble, but they are there as an arm to extend the reach of the Department of Justice to make sure a company <coughs> complies with a deferred prosecution agreement, a non-prosecution agreement, or other agreement if they have obligations going forward, and that companies can use this to really build out a best practices compliance program. And as a kind of a third key point, I think the DOJ is very concerned about recidivist behavior. They're beginning, believe they're beginning to see it more than they want to. And a monitor could act as an early tripwire. So Matt, those are my three key takeaways from the Monaco speech. And uh, I know you had some thoughts on the strategy on countering corruption as well.
0: I would just say, first, on specifically on the strategy document, I do think that, Tom, you used the word coalesce, and that's probably the right verb here, is that, to my reading of it, much of the strategy document is just bringing together pockets of anti-corruption activity that either had been happening or would have been happening on their own, absent the strategy anyways. No. Going to put it all into a strategy, that's great, Uh, but I don't think there's too much groundbreaking stuff there other than I do think it will have a really invigorating effect for international anti-corruption efforts. And there's a whole lot about working with diplomatic partners and strengthening non-governmental organizations and better analysis of data. And maybe it will lead to more joint prosecutions or more joint prosecutions with new countries we have not typically worked with before, or maybe more overseas corruption prosecutions generally. All of that is great. But my question more than anything else for both the anti-corruption strategy document and the Deputy AG Monaco's speech about invigorating anti-corruption enforcement and corporate misconduct – How do we institutionalize that beyond the Biden administration? Um, Because we do certainly seem to go back and forth between Democrats taking this seriously, Republicans taking it less seriously, not not taking it seriously, just less seriously. But uh, that was one point that the strategy document brought up was efforts to institutionalize this more muscular approach to anti-corruption, it's very possible that if Republicans win the presidency in 2025, and especially if, Lord help us, it's Donald Trump again, you know, anti-corruption is going to be flat as a doornail. Um, so I would argue that a lot of the ways that you institutionalize something is to pass legislation. There's not a whole lot of that in the anti-corruption uh, strategy document. There are some calls for outlawing uh, or make criminalizing foreign officials who take or solicit bribes from U.S. companies. I'm in favor of that. Will that legislation actually pass in Congress? I don't know. But you institutionalize something by passing the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the Anti-Money Laundering Act, the Dodd-Frank Act. That's how you make it endure for many, many administrations. And I'm not sure that we're talking enough about those kind of legislative efforts to really bring new force to anti-corruption, either globally or just enforcement domestically within the United States, what the Justice Department is doing and what Deputy AG Monaco is talking about. So I wonder how much of this stuff might just die on the vine once the Biden administration goes to, you know, fades into history, whether that's 2025 or 2029, I don't know. But, you know, that's a question I have about all of this. Well,
1: Matt, uh, I think, you know, I'm an avid follower of Radical Compliance, the blog. And you write about a wide variety of topics. You've written about uh, the two topics that you have talked about in Parts 1 and now Part 2 of this year in review. But I have to say, your writing on ransomware is some of the most innovative writing that I've seen you do. And it's some of the most innovative writing in the area of of ransomware so why don't you tell us what has intrigued you so much about ransomware uh, in 2021
0: oh that it's everywhere it is man. It, it, ransomware is all over the place um, it seems kind of poor form to talk about ransomware being an epidemic when we are in the midst of a pandemic or epidemic or endemic or whatever COVID's going to be um, but maybe ransomware is also shifting to be endemic because I don't know that it's ever going to go away But we really saw an explosion of ransomware attacks in 2021, the number of them, the targets that they were looking for, the sophistication of the attacks, and also an explosion in the price of the ransom, which for many, many years was in the low thousands of dollars, maybe on average. Uh, But now it is steadily climbed, and especially for large corporations, you could get hit by a ransomware attack, and the attackers are going to know... They've got you by the short hairs, and they're going to demand a ransom in the millions. And there are companies that are paying it. Um, so that really reached a peak in early 2021, especially with the Colonial Pipelines attack, which was at the end of April, early May. Um, quickly followed, we should note, by the JBS Meatpacking uh, Company, that they were knocked offline for a couple of days by a ransomware attack hospital systems, school systems, local governments who never have enough money to budget for proper cybersecurity. Of course, the attackers know this, so that's why they target them. And you're vulnerable because if you don't pay it and your systems are shut down and you're a hospital, patients' lives are in jeopardy. If you're an education system, you might have to shut down. You can't do remote schooling or the kids can't go to school and now every parent's going to be screaming at the principal. So there's a lot of, you know, predatory activity in ransomware. Um, That is something that businesses would need to think about, period, regardless of any regulatory obligations that they might have here. But especially after the Colonial Pipelines attack, um, the Biden administration came up with much more aggressive demands, especially for critical infrastructure companies, You're in banking, you're in telecom, you're in public utilities, you're in hospital systems or something like that. You know, you have new obligations to invest in proper cybersecurity, uh, something called zero trust architecture. That's super dorky, even by our podcast standards, Tom, so I won't get too much into what zero trust architecture is, but it's new network design aimed to blunt the threat against cybersecurity. Uh, New reporting obligations. If you are a government contractor or in critical infrastructure, you suffer some sort of ransomware attack, you're supposed to report that. Uh, And some of the reporting windows are short. They are 24 or 36 hours. Uh, My favorite is that if you are a government agency shut down by a ransomware attack, you have one hour to report that to the other government agency in charge of cybersecurity, which is CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, I think it is. Um, So there's a lot of stuff here that ransomware is driving big operational risk concerns that you have to respond to. You have to think about access controls. You have to think about patch management. You have to think about what your policies are and are we going to pay this ransom? If we pay it, do we tell the feds? If we pay it, are we obligated to tell the feds? Because maybe we are. And then if we are, what happens after that? If we're not obligated, is it a good thing to do, anyways? And generally, I would say it is. Um, But also, the federal government has made clear that if you pay the ransomware and it somehow goes to fund, say, terrorists, or it goes to uh, violate sanctions because you're paying it to North Korea or Iran. The federal government is probably going to look very unfavorably on you for that. Um, and I think the worst case scenario for a lot of companies would be you get a ransomware attack, you decide to pay it, and you somehow figure out, well, well, I guess this is going to go violate sanctions or terrorism um, uh, sanctions obligations. I guess maybe it's going to violate that. Eh, whatever. And we're not going to tell the feds. And they find out later on that you did that. I would not want to be the general counsel of that company because you will get a call from the national security section of the Justice Department. And I think that call would be really uncomfortable. So you have to think through what are our policies about ransomware? What are our policies about cooperating with the federal government? What if we cooperate with them and then 18 months later we get a call saying, well, you know, you're going to have to testify because we're about to indict these hacker dudes in the Ukraine or in North Korea or in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever it is? You know, how are you going to do that? Um, So Tom, there's a lot that ransomware is driving both in just how do we make sure we're not a victim so we can keep selling products and keep making uh, money and keep operating? How do we cooperate with the Justice Department and law enforcement if we are a victim? And the last point I will raise is, Tom, I think that we are going to see more talk of if you have poor ran- cybersecurity, you fall victim to ransomware. Is that an internal control failure under the SEC? Because technically, perhaps you could make the argument that you were not safeguarding your asset, the asset being your access to systems, or you know they hack into your system and then they initiate a wire transfer and they send $100 million off to Lord knows where, you don't have that asset anymore. You don't get that money back. And this is not like a privacy breach where they copy your customer records and use it for identity theft on the dark web, but you know, you still have the customer records. The asset is still there. You can still use it. Ransomware and these new cybersecurity attacks are different. And if you can't safeguard your asset, well, that's what internal control is supposed to do. So have you now have you now triggered some sort of ICFR violation under the SEC? And I don't think anybody knows. I don't think the SEC relishes the idea of enforcing against that, but they're starting to ask questions about it. And I could see that also having big implications for your control design, for your annual audit with your audit firm, um, with who you do business with, your business partners, if they have access to your IT systems, cloud-based vendors you're using for business processes, this is all going to get pulled into this mess that ransomware and cybersecurity are driving. And it's going to have big implications for audit, compliance, and risk managers. And it's going to be, I think, a painful road until we... I don't know when this is going to end, but it's going to be a painful road, at least for the foreseeable future.
1: We'll be back with more compliance into the weeds after a quick message from our sponsor. One of uh, the things that has intrigued me about your writing on ransomware is that you've written about how ransomware itself has evolved, and you hit upon that uh, a little bit. You talked about originally we saw uh, attacks to gain personal identifiable information of customers, so customer lists, names, addresses, perhaps social security numbers, and bank account information, but it's evolved into something else. What, how have you seen ransomware evolve in the terms of what the bad guys are looking for and how are they using that information at least? Uh, how are they using the threat of the release of that information to blackmail people into paying the ransom demands?
0: Uh, I mean, honestly, Tom, they're using it quite efficiently. Um, I think what they are doing is, number one, they're really much more sophisticated about targeting vulnerable organizations. Uh businesses that are in critical infrastructure, let's say healthcare, a great example, because if you don't have your systems up and running, lives may be at danger. Uh, Or they are looking for organizations that don't have a lot of money to invest in cybersecurity. Uh, I think it's also worth talking about how the evolution here is who the ransomware attackers are because previously they would have to be very sophisticated attackers who understood cybersecurity and weaknesses. Nowadays, there is ransomware as a service, which you can buy from attackers online somewhere, and then you can conduct your own ransomware attack, and uh, you whatever proceeds you get, then you pay back to the ransomware provider uh, some sort of a kickback of 20 or 30% or something like that. This is a nice proven business model. If you have no honor and no scruples and an internet connection, you can make good money with ransomware as a service. Uh, so that's a big problem. And also, there is this issue now of more and more efficiently, they are looking for flaws and vulnerabilities in your IT systems that you have not yet patched. And that is akin to you have the front door triple locked. That's your access controlled, your user ID and your password and all of this. And it's great at the front door but you neglect to patch up the rickety wall in the back so as you are maintaining vigilance looking out front, the attackers are coming in through that back door, the the, the cracked wall in the back. It's the cybersecurity software equivalent is just not updating your SAP or your Oracle um, Log4J is the latest vulnerability. It's going to be a big thing. We're, Tom, you and I should talk about that in another podcast. But that's the kind of sophistication that they have. And It's really getting difficult, uh, especially because this is not just IT security. This is also a compliance problem. It's also a third-party risk management problem. And you're going to need to take this very disciplined team approach if you're the company to keep these threats at bay.
1: So, Matt, for my final uh, topic, I wanted to talk about ESG. And I want to talk about it from a couple of different angles. Uh, The first is uh, I'm a firm believer that the compliance profession needs to be the leader of ESG. And I believe this uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, that uh, compliance is most well-suited in the corporate hierarchy to take over and lead ESG. The S and G part are directly within the spheres of what a compliance officer is charged in doing. Uh, We do corporate governance all the time. Uh, In terms of the S part, the Department of Justice made clear in the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs that the chief compliance officer and the compliance function are the holders of the flames for institutional justice and institutional fairness in corporations. And that, of course, reaches uh, culture that we've talked about several times over this series of podcasts is directly within the remit of compliance And that is um, something that is critical to ESG. And even with the E part, I understand that uh, there may be a more uh, technical requirement for pulling data and analyzing data around environmental. But when it comes to reporting, uh, that's what compliance officers do every day, or as I would say, document, document, document. And so the compliance officer can certainly be involved in that uh, component of the E and ESG. I think it's important that compliance lead the ESG effort because they're the most well-suited. Um, once again, top, harking back to the 2020 evaluation of corporate compliance update, the Department of Justice mandated that the compliance function have access to all corporate data across all data silos, and there are very few corporate functions that have access literally across all silos, and there are very few, and even fewer number, that are mandated by the Department of Justice to have that. So... You're going to have that access. You've got to figure out how to collect that data and, most importantly, how to analyze it already for compliance. So I don't think it's too many steps further to do ESG. And I'll finally uh, kind of end by going into the weeds a little bit on why uh, I think a compliance program is most suited to lead the ESG effort, and that's an ESG framework. I uh, list five parts to an ESG compliance framework. and Number one is materiality and a materiality assessment. That's just a risk assessment focused on the materiality of ESG issues within your corporation. Number two, policies and procedures. That's what compliance officers do uh, every day. Uh, number three is monitoring. Uh, this is, once again, something that the Department of Justice Uh, re-emphasized in the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs because they mandated ongoing monitoring as far back as the 2012 FCPA resource guide. I mentioned reporting. Once again, that's something compliance professionals do, whether it's an internal report, whether it's a report to senior management, whether it's a report to the board of directors, uh, or it's a report to the government. So that's something we're very well uh, suited to do. And number five is response and enhancement. Well, that's continuous updates after continuous monitoring. And once again, that's mandated uh, as far back as the 2012 FCPA Resource Guide and going forward to the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. So the five steps in an ESG framework, I think, are something that every compliance professional is going to be familiar with and, more importantly, is most well-suited to lead a corporate ESG program in addition to a uh, corporate compliance program. We've had a couple of examples. Uh, Teneco and Dell have elevated their CCOs to the, um, in Dell's case, it was head of uh, ESG, and in Teneco's, it was head of sustainability, but those are leading the ESG efforts, and I would hope that compliance professionals will get ahead of this. We had a recent uh, report From Compliance Week, where 24% of all uh, compliance professionals polled by Compliance Week said they were a part of their corporate ESG efforts, but 50% said uh, they wanted to have more involvement. So I think there's room for the compliance community to grow in this. And frankly, if they don't get out ahead of this ESG effort, I think they may be consigned, Uh, compliance may well be consigned to a more technical function such as internal audit down the road, because that brings me to my second point about ESG. In addition to specifically compliance, uh, other than perhaps SPACs, ESG was the most ubiquitous acronym I saw in 2021. And uh, part of it was a coalition, uh, coalition, coalescing of many ideas that had been bubbling up and really pushed forward during the pandemic. <clears throat> also the change in administration was huge because the Trump administration was outright antithetical to anything ESG and anything sustainable. And uh, certainly we had the Business Roundtable's statement on the purpose of a corporation, uh, which uh, was, uh, I think, a precursor to many of the things we see in, in ESG. But here's the critical thing I saw in 2021, Matt, which was that if you want access to capital, if you're going to be evaluated on your corporate ESG programs. And it may be as small as the Compliance Podcast Network or Radical Compliance, or maybe as big as you name the corporation. Uh, Every stakeholder is going to be looking at ESG. Shareholders are going to be looking at ESG. Institutional investors are going to be looking at ESG. Uh, Private equity investors are going to be looking at ESG. Banks who want to lend you money or give you a line of credit are going to be looking at ESG. And even insurance companies are going to evaluate ESG as an overall part of their risk rating to charge you an insurance premium. So when it gets down to the level of insurance companies think it's important, that tells me that the corporate world thinks it's important. And if the corporate world thinks it's important, it really doesn't matter who the new administration is in uh, 2024 or or really any time thereafter because the market has said this is is important. And that's uh, how I saw companies, at least in the energy market, start to really turn around and turn the corner on instituting best practices compliance programs in the first decade of this century. The regulators had a big part in that with FCPA enforcement actions, but then the market said, okay, Mr. Energy Industry, we know extractive minerals are in generally in places that are high risk for corruption. What compliance programs are you going to put in place? Number one, to prevent an FCPA violation, but number two, do business ethically and in compliance. And uh, the investors Uh, both shareholders, institutional investors, and private equity investors all look at that when they look at an investment now, and now banks look at that. And I think that same model is going to hold forth uh, moving forward for ESG. So what were your thoughts on uh, ESG in 2021,
0: Matt? Well, uh, Tom, I I won't talk too much about it here because I think you covered a lot of the ground, but I would just advise any compliance officers who are still iffy about do I want to get into this If you do not get into this, eventually someone else at your company will wind up running point on ESG, and will you then be subsumed into them rather than you subsuming the other people, other functions? I mean, it's... I I think it's eventually going to become either an eat or be eaten sort of equation for a lot of compliance officers thinking about ESG. But also, look, if compliance function doesn't run this, who else is supposed to do it? Who's going to be better at the tasks at hand than the compliance officer? I can't think of anybody. I think it's an excellent opportunity to broaden your horizons into more operating issues and uh, probably very good for your career security, at least through the remainder of this decade. So that will be my piece on ESG for today, Tom.
1: Well, Matt, we're at the end of part two in our year in wrap-up, our first year in wrap-up. Part one uh, came out a couple of days ago. Uh, this has been a lot of fun looking back on both of our writings on these topics. Perhaps we can review in six months what we talked about today and next year see where 2022 took us.
0: All right, Tom. Thank you very much.
1: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have not yet listened to part one, I would urge you to go back and take a listen to part one of our special two-part year-end review. This is the final episode for Compliance Into the Weeds in 2021. We wish you a most safe and joyous new year, and we look forward to visiting with you in 2022. Compliance into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.